When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm excited for this episode. Why is that? Mostly because of last episode, where, you know, we talked about space debris, and, you know, I really was very proud of bringing sort of a status of what is complicated about this, and is it worse than before, and all those kinds of things. And then, really, it's been a wild few weeks here. It has. Yeah. I mean, so as well as a fascinating conversation, we're actually living through space debris at the moment. And I think it just highlights how complicated uh, the problem really is. Even with the, the recent SpaceX launch, when we launched a crew to the station, the second crew to go on a SpaceX capsule, um, they had a piece of debris, which is now explained, you know, during staging, broke off from one part and passed by, did no harm. But then they also had a piece of debris that they were tracking. And this was about six hours into the flight. And they had the crew get into their spacesuits. Right. And it, and it brings it home, doesn't it? I mean, it? And it especially must bring it home to you when you suddenly realize this could be life and death. I mean, we're not playing here when you're up there and you've potentially got something hurtling to you at several thousand miles an hour. And, and even, um, I've, you know, I've seen that actually from both sides, from the mission control side of having to make that call to the crew where you're saying, like, we don't think this is going to happen, but it might happen. And that's why you need to do this. But, you know, we don't think it's going to happen. It's a hard call to make. Right. That there's just not enough time to maneuver out of the way. Right, and so right. we do actually get ourselves in the safest position, which is in our spacesuits, in our rescue ship. And of course, it's not only in space. So as we're recording this, um, we're tracking this um, Chinese booster rocket that's, that's going around the Earth. And is, it looks like it's going to have an uncontrolled re-entry into the, the atmosphere. And we're not quite sure what's going to happen. But there's the possibility that this could actually harm people here on Earth. Although, I mean, they do think that you know, the pieces are going to be small and that it won't, but we're they're, they're looking at it. And what's interesting to me is, I mean, this thing is big. Right. It weighs like 22 tons. It's huge. I mean, it really, it's what carried the first stage of the space station, the Chinese space station, up into space. So it's had like something the size of a train car. Right. And in coming back, I guess that what makes it so hard to track because I've been puzzled by this uncertainty, mm -hmm. like that we don't even know within <laughs> what, a couple why, why days. Why can't we tell where this is well, going to land? So, because it's tumbling, right, and the air resistance as it comes lower and lower is increasing, like as the skinny end goes down, then it's going faster. But then if you're having a lot of surface area directly into the wind when it's more horizontal, then that's going to be slower. And so with this variable speed, that's what makes it hard to understand exactly where on the earth it's going to hit until really, a, like, I don't know, hours before it does. Yeah, so a true chaotic motion. I, so the good news here is I was looking through some figures here, and I'm not sure how accurate this is, but I saw one estimate of the risk of somebody being hit as something like one in several trillion. So um, 
even if that's slightly out, the chances of any individual person being harmed are pretty slim. But nevertheless, it seems like the more we're doing in space, the more serious an issue this becomes. It was pretty fascinating to me to be exploring those questions last week and have them be part of the news this week. And now we're living them, yes. So we will quite literally watch this space. On today's episode, we're asking one of my favorite questions. How do we bring space closer? So why is it your favorite question? And what does that mean, bringing space closer? Well, I felt really lucky, I mean, certainly, to be in privileged to be able to go to space. And I would like everyone else to be able to go there, knowing that each of us would bring a different point of view and a really valuable perspective. And of course, it's only a really small number of people that can do this at the moment. And I, I know, Katie, your dream is for everybody to actually physically go into space. But I, I think physically we can't. So how do we actually bring space to us here? Well, I think there's Earth? a lot of neat places to do that. Places that have, you know, space vehicles or, you know, history. I mean, I'm thinking of the National Air and Space Museum. Mm, yes, I'm very topical with today's guest. But, the, you know, there's museums. There's all these places where we have the opportunity, actually, not just museums, but in television shows, in movies, in news stories, in advertisements, we show people doing space things. Yep. Maybe it's pretend, but we show them. And to make sure that we show all sorts of different kinds of people so that our kids find themselves in these places. And of course, there's a very visceral aspect to this. So I, I remember when I was studying for my first degree in physics, there was an emotional moment. I, I had several of these, but one of them was when it suddenly dawned on me how big the galaxy is and how far away stars are. And it was sort of that flip from an intellectual understanding to an emotional understanding. And it moved me deeply. And, and so you can, I, I've never been to space, but I can feel that sense of place and belonging um, because of that. And I guess this is part of bringing space to people. How do you help them feel this as well as just intellectually understand it? Wow, that's really nice of you to share, Andrew. Like when you try to explain to someone what, what you figured out, when you explain to someone who's 12, what was different for you after that moment? How did you see it differently? It's almost like stuff flipping into focus. It's it's a little bit like sort of when you need glasses, but you're not wearing them. So everything is slightly fuzzy. You know what's out there, but you can't see it snapped into focus. You put those glasses on, suddenly everything snaps. And it felt like that. I, that's about the only way I can explain it. But this is partially why I, I love the idea of helping people understand science and understanding our place in the world and that our place in the universe through science, because you can have those snap moments where all of a sudden everything snaps into place and you see things with a much bigger perspective. And I'm going to say that today's guest, I think, thinks about making that happen for literally every person that right. walks into the National Air and Space Museum. Which is why this is such an exciting episode. Andrew. Weekly Obsessions, it's your turn. So this is a little bit of a geeky one, but I've been obsessed with rotating space habitats. Um, and I'm beginning to worry that we've actually got the physics of these wrong. So by rotating space habitats, I mean these sort of sci-fi sort of rotating space stations where you've got artificial gravity because this thing is spinning around. Or you, you read these sci-fi stories about huge cylinders that are rotating around. And of course, everybody loves this idea. You can recreate gravity. 
I think we might have the physics wrong with this. Well, you know, these people who want to recreate gravity, they have not been to space, okay? Right. I mean, seriously, what I, what I, I mean, I see this, I'm like, it's wrong. It's just wrong. <laughs> you mean it's, <laughs> it's wrong to try and recreate gravity or they've just got it wrong? You think everybody should just be floating around in microgravity? Well, I don't know. It would be like putting, you know, earplugs in at the symphony. I mean, to go to, to go to space and not experience, at least, I mean, this part of it was just so tangible and magical to me to be able to fly everywhere. Yes. Um, so, Andrew, I do want to hear about the physics, but I just want to tell you that, ironically, I've been obsessing about why are all these people trying to create gravity on these space stations. I was going to say, we're, we're in synchronicity. We're obviously sort of so clued in that we're obsessing about the same things. <laughs> Which is scary. But but tell me why you think the physics is wrong. So, so this is it. And this is what got me thinking about this. So you've now got a company that's trying to create the, the first space hotel with one of these sort of rotating stations. Um, but we're going to be trying to build these things without ever having done this before. And the difference between something rotating and mimicking gravity versus actual gravity is gravity affects every single atom in our body. Every single atom of our body is being pulled to the center of the Earth. If you're in a rotating widget, whatchamacallit, whatever you want to call it, and the thing that is creating gravity is stuff that is being pushed onto the outside of your body. So it's a very, very different force. But beyond that, just anybody that's played with um, something that, that's going round, uh, a gyroscope, something like that, you'll know that there's really weird behavior. You push it in one direction and it tries to move in another direction. I reckon when we're all up there on one of these rotating stations, we're going to find effects that we never expected. And it's going to be so disorientating that it's just going to feel nasty. And we're all going to wish that we were actually floating around in microgravity rather than sort of cooped up in this thing that just makes us feel ill. So we agree, okay? Right. Although <laughs> although I, I think that you'll get used to whatever the sensation is. I mean, a lot of us don't feel well when we first get to space right. because you, you suddenly, you know, the cues that your head gets are just you know, so different than what your eyes are seeing. Right. And so, you know, you give yourself a little push, you fly, you stop kind of abruptly. Your head is like, she never started, but now she stopped. And, and I must say, I would be bad at this. Um, I get seasick when I'm becalmed, when I'm out at sea. So no space station, correlation. no. Really, oh, no really? correlation. Really? Air sick, seasick, no correlation. But, you know, there is medicine to help you not feel ill. Right. Everybody gets over it. And it just takes some time. And when you get home, you probably have to go through it again. It's right. just a little messy, right? Um, but we have we have ways to do that too. I, I think we actually need to make a break from 1950s sci-fi and ditch these rotating space stations and, and think more creatively about the experience of being in space. I like it. I like it. And just, just a challenge for the folks out there that are imagining new designs, the thing that shoots down those rotating you know, modules all the time is that we also go up there for science where everything is really still. Yes. Right? And then suddenly we have this mechanical vibration at by the very turning of the centrifuge, so to speak. And so it makes it difficult for science. So if you're going to insist on having the turning, you're going to have to solve that problem. But I do welcome you to. Okay. Sounds like a challenge. Hey, we are going to take a quick break and we will be right back. Today on Mission Interplanetary, we're asking, how do we bring space closer? Our guest is Ellen Stofan. 
Ellen is the Undersecretary for Science and Research at the Smithsonian. Previously, she was the John and Adrian Mars Director of the National Air and Space Museum. She's also been the Chief Scientist at NASA, serving as Principal Advisor to the Administrator on Science Programs and Strategic Planning. She's currently on the science and engineering team of NASA's Dragonfly mission, working to send a rotorcraft lander to Saturn's moon, Titan. Alan, welcome to Interplanetary. Thank you. It's fun to be here. So I've got to ask you, Alan, before we get into this, why Titan? What is cool about Titan? Oh my gosh, everything is cool about Titan. In 30 seconds. <laughs> uh, okay, the coolest thing about Titan is here you are, over 100 million miles from Earth out at Saturn, on this little ice ball moon of Saturn, and you'd think, what could be further away from the Earth, literally, but also in its geology? But it's the only moon in the solar system that has a substantial atmosphere. So it rains. There are rivers that flow into seas. And so it's the only place in the solar system with a whole liquid system, but it's liquid methane and ethane because it's kind of cold out there. Oh, right. So I, you, you were saying that I was thinking water. This sounds really cool, but this is not water. No, it's it's 90 degrees Kelvin on the surface of Titan. Just a little but chilly. that makes it even more interesting because if you're trying to figure out how do seas work, how does gases exchange between the liquid and the atmosphere, how do rivers carve an ice planet, not a, a silicon rock planet, it's a perfect place to go to really learn the physics of processes that affect us here on Earth. So how come a helicopter? Because you want to get around. Um, you want to go from True. place to place to place. <laughs> and, you know, we um, recently everybody was involved in the excitement over the Perseverance landing on Mars. But on Titan, a rover is going to take you long. Titan actually has a very dense atmosphere. So why not take advantage of that? dense atmosphere and fly. Now, they're trying that on, on Perseverance with Ingenuity, but on Mars with a very thin atmosphere, it's hard to get things to fly. Titan is the perfect place for flying besides Earth. This is so cool. But I do want to bring us back a little bit closer to home. Um, so one of the things that really intrigues me is that the edge of space is commonly understood to begin at what's called the Kármán line, which is only about 62 miles above our heads. Um, 62 miles really doesn't sound that far. But for most people, the idea of space seems to be really distant still. And only a few select people get to go there, people like our own Katie, for instance. But we like to think that space is for all humankind, even though it seems to be so inaccessible. So, and this is, of course, a lot of what you do. How do we fulfill this vision? How do we make space for everyone? It's a great question. And first of all, I do want to I do want to point out that when you know people start worrying, thinking about climate change, and thinking how can we as humans affect the atmosphere. I think they do not understand what a narrow, thin band, only the astronauts who have this experience of being able to see the Earth from space, really understand how thin our atmosphere. I mean, Washington, D.C., you know, up, up to New York is, is, is thicker than how our atmosphere is tall. So, so first of all, I, I, that getting that image of fragility of Earth's atmosphere and our ability, frankly, to mess with it is one of the reasons that I do think it's important for people to get up to space to understand that we really are in this spaceship of a planet that we really need to take care of. And here we are at the edge of an era where it's going to go from people just like Katie and, and 
And I'm so jealous of the amazing experiences she's had up on the International Space Station. But we're on the cusp of many more people getting to have that experience that I do think is so important for this overview effect of really understanding the fragility of our home planet. And Katie, how visceral was that for you the first time you went up to space? I mean, is it as visceral as an experience as people seem to say? Well, first I have to relate a story, which is that on my first crew, we looked down, we saw my crewmate and I from Massachusetts, saw Massachusetts for the very first down time. And he has a really thick Massachusetts accent and he looks down and he goes, oh my gosh, it's just like the map. <laughs> and I think the more people that we have go to space, the more we can bring those stories back home. Because frankly, um, it is stories that tend to move us to, to get us engaged, to get us involved. It's the arts that make us feel that bring in emotion. And I, I think that aspect is really important. So when we have someone like the astronaut, Nicole Stott, you know, who does the first watercolor, you know, or not the first, but she does watercolors up in, up in space that we're lucky enough to have her little watercolor on loan at the National Air and Space Museum. Or you have Katie up playing a flute on the International Space Station. Having humans live in space in a human way, um, not just up there doing scientific experience, experiments, but actually living in space, I think that brings it home to people here on this planet. So, Ellen, in, in working at the museum or running the museum, I should say, is there a tension between, I mean, some people, it's all about the machinery. It's about the spacecraft and the nuts and the bolts and how we're getting there. Is there a tension between that and storytelling? And how do you how do you reach the future and bring space to people? Well, you know, we strongly feel that our our role at the Air and Space Museum is to inspire the next generation of innovators and explorers. And, and I totally do believe that some kids will come in and they'll see an, an, an aircraft engine and be like, oh, I want to take that thing apart. I want to understand how it works. And they are attracted and inspired by the machinery. Um, but I would argue many more people are going to be inspired by the stories. So when they hear about Bessie Coleman, um, no relation to Katie, the first African-American woman to get a pilot's uh, license. She had to go to France to do it back in the 1920s. When they hear her story of perseverance, of defying odds to defy gravity the way she wanted to, you know, to me, that's what is, is inspiring. So we have to find those stories and tell those stories, whether it's about the person who invented that engine or that first um, black woman to take flight, those stories are what inspire. So you have this amazing institution, the National Air and Space Museum. How do you tell these stories through that institution? You know, especially with the challenge of COVID, we're, we're being forced in a really good way to, to do it in every way possible. The Smithsonian is, is really the nation's museum. And, and so while it's great that we have so many visitors to Washington, the Air and Space Museum is normally the most visited museum in, in, in the United States. We have over 6 million to 7 million visitors a year. But right now we have zero <laughs> because of COVID. And so it's forced us in a really good way to turn to digital programming. So we do Facebook Lives. We have online lessons. We, do, we have online lectures. We have... Um, kits we're putting together to help teachers around the country, to help families have activities to do at home. And frankly, that's a good thing. 
We needed to have that all along because there's, for all that we have so many visitors coming to Washington, there's way more people than that who won't come to Washington, D.C. And as the nation's museum, we need to meet them where they are at home and let them hear these great stories. They need to know about people like Katie and what it's like to go up into space. So our job is to bring that to them wherever they are. And COVID's forced us to do that. So it's it's been the lemonade out of what has been obviously a horrible lemon. That's interesting to me, Ellen. I mean, you're exactly at the intersection of space and culture. And, you know, we've been talking about stories and sharing with a broader population. But in, we've witnessed a lot of cultural change in the last 20 years, and even in the last five, and even, I would say, in the last year, in the last months. So how does that change the kinds of stories or the way you tell stories? And, and you know, I, I, how do people like yourself who work at that intersection communicate to the public? How, how do you adapt? How do you coach other people to do so? You know, I think one of the things that we've certainly known has been increasingly important is that role of of having someone who looks like you and hearing the stories of someone that looks like you is part of inspiration. And so if you're a Latino child in this country and you go into a, a museum and you don't see anybody who looks like you who's accomplished great things, are you going to feel like you belong? Are you going to feel completely inspired? And yet, if you go into that, if that child goes into our museum and sees a story about Ellen Ochoa, the first um, Latina woman to go into space, you know, they know people who look like me do these things. And, and I could do these things because, and it helps you see yourself in, in that position. So that's our job is to find those stories. And again, use every aspect from in-person experiences to online experiences, uh, you know, to, to tell all those stories. Do you find that that goes beyond just people that look like you to people that think like you to people that see the world like you? And I'm, I'm thinking in terms of um, there's been this emphasis on scientists and engineers going into space. How about artists? How about people that just have a totally different perspective on things? Is this part of the storytelling as well? It is, it is totally part of the story, and I'm really proud. We're in the middle of renovating the Air and Space Museum on the National Mall, and when we finish the res- renovation, the Air and Space Museum will once again have an art collection or an art gallery within the museum. We actually have the largest, uh, huge collection of art. We have more art than the Hirshhorn, our, our, one of our sister Smithsonian museums, because during the Apollo program, NASA commissioned all the leading artists of the day to document the Apollo program. So we actually have a number of Norman Rockwells. Uh, we have a Rauschenberg. We have an amazing collection of kind of 1960s, you name a famous artist, we've got one. And that art part I find is incredibly important because we do need artists and storytellers. But even beyond that, for example, we have a project right now going on on African futurism. And later in the year, we're going to be doing something on Latino futurisms. You have to realize it doesn't just come in terms of, of, you know, an artist making a painting, but it's storytellers and how they view the future. Right. Um, and when you walked right into the Air and Space Museum before we were in construction, you were confronted by the Starship Enterprise. And some people might say, you know, why do you have the Starship Enterprise? You guys are a science and technology. But that, in, that imagination part is really critical but we also have to then make sure, are we taking everyone's visions of the future? And, and visions of the future vary by culture, and culture has an influence on how you look at the future. 
And let's tell all those stories because that makes it way more interesting, way more fun. I, I love that. How do you do that, though? I mean, how do you how do you become as inclusive as possible with this storytelling about space and humanity? You know, you have to collect that way, right? In, in museums, um, it, you know, you, there's been a huge um, effort over the last at least twenty years on decolonizing museums of saying, "What do our what are our collections?" Because we tell stories through things whether it's a painting, whether it's a spacesuit, um, whether it's a science fiction artifact from a movie. We need a thing to help us tell the story. And then it becomes, you start looking at your collections and you're like, wow, all of our artifacts tell one slice of this story. We need to start collecting to tell all the story. And that's a huge emphasis across the Smithsonian, frankly, across museums around the world is to say, how do we now make our collections look like the world, not just one point of view, one perspective, one place? And even, you know, almost your daily newspaper, what, what you see when you go on the website, your partnership with Victor Glover, who's up on the space station. This is the first Black astronaut to be living on the space station. We've had many come on the shuttle. But, you know, his experience is important. And what I've seen, you're, you're really letting people live that experience with him. We've been really excited with the partnership with, with Victor that um, Katie helped us um, put together. And we did an event with the National Museum of African American History and Culture. We're partnering on, on these events. We did one uh, live um, interview with him before he went to space. We've done one with him while he's been living on the International Space Station. And then when he comes back, we're going to do another big event, hopefully in person, fingers crossed. Um, to celebrate his return and talk to him. And, and again, so important to highlight what he's doing, the work he's getting done, um, and, and again, for, to get his story out to serve as, a, as an inspiration to every kid in this country. Well, and I'm not just trying to be, you know, nice or complimentary, but the way you did that was so wonderful, where you had, you had sourced questions from kids and students around the country. And they, on video, asked their questions. And Victor saw those videos. And then, and so we at home saw, some, you know, somebody, a, a student asking a question, Victor answering it, not just a voice on the phone. That's what I was struck by, because we do a lot of interviews from the space station, but I've seldom seen it done this way, if ever. And in that way, when kids are watching this, they are seeing themselves because you had a lot of different kinds of kids. I, I really loved it, Ellen. It it was really heartwarming. It was, you know, I see things like that and I get all teary because it's just the experience these kids have. And I've been on the ground when people have just done radio uplinks with the International Space Station. And if you can imagine being in an auditorium with like 140 elementary school kids and you can literally hear a pin drop because those kids are vibrating with excitement and they know they have to be quiet because they're talking to people in space. Um, and when you and see those that, people are talking to them, it's <laughs> yeah, too exciting. And, and here we had an actual, you know, the ability to have video going back and forth. It was really meaningful. And I hope it was, it was meaningful for Victor too, because obviously I'm when sure. you're up on the international space station, you must kind of say like, like it's a one way thing and being able to have that two way is great. 
And that brings us back to this idea that 62 miles above the Earth, how transformative would it be if we could make even just that accessible with short hops up above that line and, and back down again? Do people really need to go into orbit or is even that sort of jump going to change how people see the Earth? You know, I, I, was, I will frankly admit to being completely skeptical. And I, when the second Virgin Galactic flight went off, went up and Beth Moses, who's their astronaut um, trainer, was on board that flight. And they put up a picture of her looking out the window at the Earth. And the look on her face encapsulated awe and delight and amazement in a way I've never seen a photograph of hmm. someone's face do before. And I looked at her face and I want, I want to look like, <laughs> <laughs> I want to look out that window and feel what she's feeling. And I right. hadn't, I had been skeptical. You go, you go up for 62 miles, you come right back down again. The look on her face convinced me that it was worth it, frankly. So obviously that means we need to find ways of getting more people above that line. But even so, it's always going to be expensive. So you're always going to have an awful lot of people that can never actually travel up there. So Ellen, come on. Katie and I are going to challenge that. You know, again, <laughs> I think in the, in the 1930s and 40s, you know, when air travel just seemed like something that was exotic and only for a few people and, and hardly for anyone. And we have to get to the point where air travel becomes, or sorry, where space travel, mm -hmm. the cost does come down. And I guess I'm just the eternal optimist. Is it going to happen within 20 years? Probably not. Is it going to happen within 100 years? I, I'm going to bet on it. And, you know, and, but my problem is I do read too much science fiction. You know, The Expanse is my favorite <laughs> show right now. So, so I do live, you know, one foot in that world where you're like, the future is coming. It's probably going to be a little slower than maybe you or I would want it. But someday anyone who wants to go into space will be able to go. And then, I, so something that really fascinates me here. So I, I love this idea of uh, more and more people being able to go up to space and experience it. But the reality is that at least for the next decade or so, um, if you want to have millions of people experience this, they've got to do it on the ground. So, Ellen, I, the question to you then is if you had unlimited funds and unlimited access to creativity with the Air and Space Museum, what in your dream future would you do to enable people to experience space on Earth? Hmm. Yeah, that's a hard one because again, you know, actually, um, someone who's been to space, um, Richard Garriott de Caillou, um, who, um, who I know Katie knows, who has gone to space. His his father was an Apollo, a Skylab astronaut, and he has gone up into space. And he and I had a long conversation about this. Like, it, what could you do? Is there any way you could bring that overview effect to people? Um, could you create some kind of gallery? that taking away microgravity, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that you could really visually make people feel like they're in space. And we both really struggled with how much you could really recreate that feeling. I mean, I've been in incredible um, rooms and museums where they did a lot with sound and temperature and, um, and really surrounding you with video to make you so I think there's things you could do but frankly to me 
it's going to still not quite do it. It, it it's tough, it, and I wonder whether that actually brings us back to storytelling. So that the power of stories to me has always been it allows you to experience something um, secondhand or remotely that somebody else has experienced. And even just reading a book, it's incredible how it transports you somewhere else. Um, so maybe this is the answer: is not so much the technology, but how do you immerse people in these stories? Yeah. And, and it's interesting to me because a lot of people, you know, for years, especially early in my career, you just get in these endless arguments of people of should we be sending humans, you know, should, why do you want to send humans to Mars when we can send all these great robots like right. Perseverance to Mars? And one of the reasons is people can come back and tell stories. They can tell you how they felt. They can tell you what it sounded like in a way that you just can't completely, you know, it's great. Perseverance has sent back sounds. My first thought on hearing that is, I want to hear that for myself on the surface of Mars. And, right. and I do think this aspect of the human experience in the place is critical. Well, and even that, that photograph of the Earth from space, you know, seeing the moon in the background, or so, sorry, um, but you know what I mean, <laughs> the Christmas time photograph where you see the Earth from so far away. Yes. That photograph had been taken uh, earlier by a spacecraft. And no one really cared that much except the scientists probably, right? And it wasn't until a human took that photograph and shared it that it became this iconic photo that actually spurred an, an entire movement in terms of thinking about thinking about our Earth differently. Exactly. I think so. I think the more we can get, you know, again, the, the new experiences from Mars, the new videos, the sound, I think with, with virtual reality, it is going to get better and better and more and more accessible. And, and when you combine that with the storytelling, I think you're really going to be able to give people much more meaningful experiences. Well, Ellen, it sounds like both you've got your work cut out for you in terms of where we go from here um, within the best job on the planet, I believe. Ellen Stofan, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's great to talk to you. So, most of our listeners have never been to space. I have. Yeah, you've mentioned that. Once or twice. Which is why I loved our conversation with Ellen this week about bringing space closer. We can't do much to help people see space. Podcast audio format. But we can help them hear space. In a segment we call Sounds of Space.
Hey, Katie, what was that? Well, it turns out that even in space, there are leaf blowers. You know, that was exactly the same thought I had. It just brought back these memories of people working outside my window. This last year while we've been on Zoom, those really annoying interludes where you've got the leaf blowers outside and everything else going on. And here here on the farm, we will have like, it'll be, you know, snow and then there's plowing and, and there's grass cutting and I mean, there's tractors. So, so, so you realize our producers have tricked us here. They told us this was a sound of space. It's really the leaf blowers outside their apartments. <laughs> it's not, but it would be nice if that was the story. So that, believe it or not, was the surface of the moon. So here's the backstory. Since 2009, NASA's Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter has been circling the moon, creating an extremely detailed map of its surface. And what you heard was a sonification of the moon's topography, converting the elevations into sound waves. So this is really cool. Imagine if the moon were a spherical record album spinning beneath a gigantic record needle. And this is exactly what you'd hear. This sonification comes to us from the great folks again at System Sounds. That was the sound at the surface of the moon. That was awesome. So that's where we have like Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. They were uh, ahead of their time. Actually, you hear the dark side and the bright side, I guess, with this. Actually, I, I didn't check with the sonification, but yes, I guess it sort of ties in with Dark Side of the Moon, Pink Floyd, and a whole bunch of other things. And I, I actually, I love this analogy of the, the record. This really appeals to me, the idea that you've got this disc and you've got this virtual needle moving across it, creating these sounds. Well, and it makes sense that we would have a 3D phonograph, right? It, it is. I, so actually, this is the, the 21st century vinyl. It's a three-dimensional disc that just happens to be the moon. And we've got this probe that is just scanning across the surface like that needle. Let's listen to that again. for this week and it's our final episode of the season i can't believe it's over but it's been like this amazing journey through all these different people's worlds it's been a blast i we've spoken to people that have just blown my mind katie over the last several weeks and i like hearing their reactions i mean i feel like we're causing ripples out there because people are discussing, you know, we talked about space law, people really start thinking about it. We looked at debris this week and even law comes into that. Right. And decolonizing space, really important conversations that I'm so privileged to have been a part of. Katie Mack's episode really had me thinking really quite a bit, you know, in terms of, I mean, it's about physics and these ways that the universe could end. but. You know, for me, it made me realize that, you know, that overview effect, it, it affects physicists too. <laughs> it absolutely does. A perfect tie-in with this last episode of the season where we talk about bringing space to all of us. So important. So we're going to take some time off, but we will be back with a second season of Mission Interplanetary before you know it. There is so much space to explore. There is. 
Mission Interplanetary is produced by Lance Garavi. Our sound engineer and designer is Steven Christensen, and our music is composed by Mario Iniguez. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you leave us a review and tell us what you think. Also, tell us what you want to hear in our second season. Email us at interplanetarypodcast at asu.edu. Tweet us. And please, please, please recommend us to your friends, your family, your colleagues, and anybody else you bump into. Mission Interplanetary is a production of Arizona State University's Interplanetary Initiative and Slate. We'll be back for Season 2, asking the big questions about space exploration. The future is interplanetary. We'll see you there.